0: Because we're going to study 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 today, and it's all about giving money. Which is the subject that everybody loves talking about in church. And if you are first time here and you're visiting, you're like, oh, great. What a Sunday to show up on. So here's what I want to do. While we go through this, I want you to understand that what Paul is doing is absolutely talking about giving and finances and money. That's totally what he's doing but he's doing it in a way that kind of exposes the heart behind the actual giving of finances and offerings to the church. And what that is, is our willingness to be obedient to God in the things he wants to use through us. That's important. Because if we go through this and your only thought is another church service, another pastor talking about money, then you're not going to hear what Paul is actually saying. He's using this as an illustration to definitely raise support for something back in Jerusalem, but the principles that he applies in this apply to such a deeper level. Yes, he's using money to talk about a principle, but the principle is our desire as a people of God to live open-handed. That's what this is about. He's using money to illustrate that, but ultimately, what this is about is you can be a follower of God who is close handed and walks around thinking that the stuff you got from Him, you got to hold on to and use in this small circle, or you can live this life that Paul is talking about that is open and free and your hands are open to constantly receive from God and then give out and share. And this is not just in money, that's what he's using, but it's in time and talents and resources. It's in everything that God has blessed you with. All the gifts from heaven that come down to you are meant to flow through you and not stop at you. Do you follow? So before we get into this, don't just put up a wall and say, well, I'm not going to hear what you have to say because I've heard this one before. You haven't because the Holy Spirit is going to do something very unique through today. So just listen. That's all I ask. Just follow the leading of the Holy Spirit and allow Him to speak things to you that you might not understand or have been applying. Cool? Okay, so we're going through 2 Corinthians. Uh, We finished last week in chapter 7, and Paul was talking about his joy and Titus's joy, and then his joy in Titus's joy, all around the obedience to the Corinthians. So um, the lesson from last week is that joy is this shared thing, and it's shared in obedience. When we follow God and we obey Him, there is a shared joy among the church. We all get excited when everybody is doing what the Bible tells us to do. Right? You kind of sense that on a Sunday morning when we're all together and then everyone chooses to like sing out at the same time and the band kind of backs off and it's just all the voices. You know that feeling that you get You're like, yeah, all right, this is probably what heaven's like. This is that joy that kind of rises up when it's not just your voice, but you can see hear everyone singing with you. That's what Paul is talking about. There's a shared joy in the family of God when we're all on the same page and in unity and doing stuff together. But conversely, when we're walking in disobedience, that creates a sense of sorrow across the family. And it's not just in your life. You think that when you walk in disobedience, that the repercussions of disobedience stop with you, but that's not what the Bible teaches. Those repercussions of disobedience trickle down to your kids, to your wife, to your family, to your workplace, to your immediate circle of influence, to your friends, but then that starts expanding out to the church. And that's why Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians, because he had some people in this church who were disobeying what God told the people of God to do, and it was affecting the church as a whole. It was watering down the conviction of the church. It was kind of, um, uh, in, in the sense of the city, uh, putting this church up as a fraud or a fake, because they're saying these things about God, but they're living these uh, ungodly ways. So the, the two don't jive, and that's not really an interesting, like, I'm not a, I don't want anything to do with God's kingdom if, if it's just a bunch of hypocrites. So Paul wrote that first letter, and then he wrote this second letter, and he spent the first seven chapters kind of walking through what it looks like to be a Christian, and here in 8, he kind of takes um, a a right turn. And when he does this, he he starts addressing in 8 and 9 this uh, issue or um, uh, this uh, concern he has for the giving that he has already established within this church. So he was there um, about a year ago, uh, or he wrote them about a year ago, and that's when 1 Corinthians was written, and he addressed this idea of taking up a collection or an offering for the church in Jerusalem. And he started to catch wind that they're not as excited as they once were when this first idea came out. So let's pick up in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up now. We're going to put it up on the screen so you can follow along. Let's read the first couple verses. Uh, And then as we read, we'll kind of pause and dissect and kind of go through what he's talking about because there's a lot of implied stuff. And that's an interesting thing that we've learned as we're going through 2 Corinthians with talking to you guys after the service. Um, There's a lot of things that seem like they were probably little conversations that Paul had with the church in Corinth when he was there. And so he references things in his letter. And if you were there, you know exactly what he's talking about. But like if you haven't seen the show, it's like watching two people talk about a funny scene and you've got no context for it. That's us reading Paul right? So we're going to try and fill in the context as we're going along. So 2 Corinthians 8.1, it says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. All right, so if you're on Slack, I posted a, a, a kind of a, a map of Paul's third missionary journey and the areas that he was in and where he was when he was writing this. He was in Macedonia. Um, the churches that were prominent in Macedonia would have been Philippi, Thessalonica. So you're thinking like um, Thessalonians, that's the book that was written to that church. Philippians, that's the area he's in and that's the area he's describing now. So he wants to talk about the grace of God that has been given to the churches in Macedonia. So what, what is this grace? Verse two, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, okay, so they had a ton of joy and a ton of poverty, those two things combined have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and then beyond their means on their own accord, begging us, earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but, we gave, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us, so, so they were obedient in serving God, they were obedient in helping us accomplish the work of ministry, but then they went even further and started walking in obedience to support the further ministry of other churches who are without. Verse 6, accordingly we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among us, excuse me, should complete among you this act of grace. So now he's going back into Second Corinthians and addressing the Corinthian church. But as you, the Corinthian church, excel in everything, you guys are are pro-faith, you're pro-speech, you're pro-knowledge, in all earnestness and all love for you, you guys are top-notch, A-plus grades in all of these things, see that you excel in this act of grace also. All right, so let's pause there and dissect this. What is the offering Paul is talking about? Well, back in 1 Corinthians, he addresses this idea that what he has decided to do on his missionary journeys, now he's, he's traveling to all these different churches uh, that are Gentile churches. He's planting them, and he's growing them, he's writing letters to them. What he has decided is, as he's going through these areas, he's going to take up an offering at these churches so that at the end of his third missionary journey, he's going to deliver all of the money that was given from these Gentile churches to the church in Jerusalem. Now, why why does all these Gentile churches need to collect money for the church in Jerusalem? Because in Jerusalem, you remember Jesus, that's where he did all of his ministry, that's where he died. That was where the early first church started, the Pentecost, the day of Acts, that's where the first church started. You've got these leaders, John and Peter and James, they're leading the church. You've got a bunch of Jewish people who have now converted to Christianity And they are being disowned, and their businesses are being boycotted because now they're Christians. So in Jerusalem, you've got all these folks who were following Jesus, and now they're converts. And there's a big revival happening in Jerusalem. Lots of people, Jewish people, are getting saved. But they're also getting persecuted in the form of their businesses are being boycotted, and they're being disowned, and their family wants nothing to do with them. And so they have, because they chose Jesus, become poor overnight. So Paul, he wants to kill two birds with one stone. He wants to bless these Jewish believers in Jerusalem. He wants to take care of their needs, their financial needs, because they've actually got to pay the bills and f- feed their family. Well, we can meet <clears throat> that specific need by collecting the money from these Gentile churches. But, but there's another thing that we can do. If I can collect money from these Gentile churches and present it to the Jewish believers, then what that says about the kingdom of God as a whole, is that the lines that have been so clear throughout the ages as far as race, Jew and Gentile, they're now completely wiped away in the eyes of God. This new thing that Jesus is doing completely erases the concept of Jew and Gentile, and it's most obvious in the fact that these Gentiles who have never met these Jewish believers are giving of their own finances to take care of them. And so what Paul wants to do is he wants to collect this money and present it as a way of saying, hey, these Gentiles that have always looked down on you because you're Jewish, and you know how you feel about those Gentiles because you are Jewish? Look what they gave you to meet your needs. Do you see what he's trying to do? He's trying to preach the gospel by using the giving of these people. He's trying, to, he's trying to demonstrate how amazing it is for the people of God to say, I don't see the lines that the world makes me see. In God's family, we're all one. I don't see those lines anymore. And, and I don't just say that with my mouth. I back it up with my pocketbook. And that's really important, because the truth is that you can say a lot of things with your mouth, and you can do a lot of things with your body and your time, but oftentimes what really is deep down doesn't get exposed until you start directing your money towards it. And if you don't believe me, pull up your bank statement from last month and look through and see where you're spending your money. That is where your heart is. I didn't say that. Jesus said that. He said, download your bank statement, right? Your your heart, right? We're convinced. We know what's in there. But Jesus says, you want to know what's really in there? Look where you're spending your money. You can't serve two masters, implying that money is a master that directs your affections. And so if you want to know, am I really sold out? Do I really love him? Look where you're spending your money. And Paul uses this to leverage a principle to the Corinthian church. And this is what's so fascinating with the way he does it. The Macedonian church has been giving over and above. They're described as uh, in their abundance of joy and extreme poverty, they had an overflowing of generosity in giving their wealth. So they had nothing to start with and the little that they have over and abundantly they gave away for those who had even less. To the point where even they were begging Paul for the opportunity to help. And what Paul describes this as is not just giving in the sense of giving. And this is what's interesting, because in 1 Corinthians, Paul goes out of the way to explain how when he was there for a year and a half, two years of the first time in Corinth to plant the church, he never took any money from the church. It is normal. It is within God's economy for the people who are receiving the teaching of God's word to cover the cost of the person doing the teaching of God's word. That was his point in 1 Corinthians. But he said, I didn't take any of your money because I was trying to make a point about the value of God's kingdom over meeting my own needs. I'll take care of my own needs. I just want you to understand the important principles of God's kingdom. He said that in 1 Corinthians. And so here, it's interesting because the way he's phrasing this, he hasn't actually talked about money. He hasn't actually said money. He's talking about it like giving, and he uses this word called grace. And the way he describes it is interesting. In uh, the end of seven, he says, I, I want you to excel in this act of grace. In verse one, he says, I want you to know about the grace of God that has been given among the churches. So this is, this is interesting. And the reason why it's interesting is because as Christians, we kind of assume that grace is this thing that God does like to us, Or for us. It is like the unmerited favor of God. It is is getting from God the things that we don't deserve. That's grace, right? But there's another kind of grace that Paul talks about here in 2 Corinthians 8, and that is the grace of God not doing something to you or for you, the grace of God doing something through you. Now, this kind of echoes back to our study in Genesis when we talked about God um, working in and through his people, working in and through the life of Joseph. He's changing Joseph, but he also is working through Joseph to change the lives of his brothers. And this is what Paul is getting at. Grace is this thing that God does to us, but it's also this thing that God does through us. And what he does through us is meet the needs of each other by using each other. We're gonna care for each other, not by God magically printing money out of the air and it just falling into our laps. God's gonna take care of us by pressing on those of us in the family who have abundance to take care of those who have a need. That's how God works. And Paul describes that process as grace. It's a grace to be used by God to meet somebody else's need. It is God flowing through you to meet a need, which is huge because what that means is it takes this burden that we carry that says, well, I have to do this. I'm giving because I have to be obedient. The Bible tells me I have to, so I have to do it there. No, that's not how it works at all. How it works is this. You stare at Jesus and you're transformed by what you see and you get changed so deep on the inside that you can't stop looking for ways to be used by God. And this is just one of them. And one of them being God leverage my finances to actually meet the tangible needs of somebody who doesn't have the money to feed their family or that they were laid off because of COVID and they don't have these specific ways to take care of whatever. God, use me. Not just pray, God, I hope, oh man, I hope that their needs are met. No, no, no. Like the Macedonian church. God, I'm begging you, use me. Work through me because I want that joy of participating and building your kingdom by living open-handedly and letting that stuff flow through me to them. I cannot, I, I, I want that opportunity every time I get it. I want to be on your team and I want to be used by you so desperately. I don't want to just learn and sit and study and say, oh, that was a good message. That was interesting. No, no, no. I want to put my hands to the plow. I want to do something for you. Work through me. That's how Paul is describing the giving of the church in Macedonia. Now, this is interesting. In in, in Greek, which is what this letter was written in, the word for grace is the word word charis. All right, C-H-A-R-I-S. Now, this is what's funny to me. I don't think Paul probably intended this, but it's funny. So the, the word grace is charis. And that is the root word that we get charisma or charismatic, right? It's the word that we tie to the gifts of the Spirit, right? The actual gifting, the grace of God to gift his people unique things. Paul is saying that one of the gifts that God gives is this ability to be used by him financially to bless other people. That's a gift from God, in addition to all the other gifts that Paul laid out to the church in Corinth, uh, in 1 Corinthians. Things like um, a discerning of spirits, things like healing, things like speaking tongues, uh, things like uh, um, gifts of faith, um, uh, things like uh, uh, just, uh, words of wisdom, words of knowledge. These are gifts that God has blessed this church with, the Corinthian church, and they're using them on a regular basis. This charismatic gift. This church is a very charismatic church, the Corinthians, right? But the way Paul is describing the giving of the Macedonian church, he's essentially saying, look, I, I know you guys are really charismatic, but when it comes to giving, the Macedonians, man, they're lapping you. That's what he's saying. He's using the word that we would use to describe um, uh, the charismatic side of being a church. And he's saying, yeah, you have um, this box with all of these things that you would consider God's gifts, but I'm telling you that there's something else that God considers a gift that you're ignoring. So if you really want all of him, there's a thing that you're leaving out. Stop leaving it out. And that thing he's talking about is the grace or the gift of being used by God to be a giver. Now, the thing about this, the reason why he's bringing this up, this is why he says in verse 7, um, I want you to excel in everything. Definitely all of those things that you excel in, we talk about in 1 Corinthians, like, keep excelling at those things, but there's something else I want you to excel in. You've got to add this to the box. I want you to excel in this act of grace also. I want you to be the kind of church that is willing to give. And that's the difference between the Macedonian church and the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church was blessed. They were wealthy. They were rich with all of these great gifts from God, but they lacked a willingness to share. They were like a pond with no little rivers to let the water out. Eventually, that water just kind of sits, and there's a lot of it there, but it's not flowing, and it becomes stagnant. You don't want to drink that stuff. That's what Paul's getting at. You can be wealthy and all these things God's blessed you, but unless you're letting yourself lift open-handedly, so they're actually coming through your hands, and you're being used by God, so these things are not just to build your own resume, or your credibility, so you could send, sell lots of books, or be on a podcast, or you know, teach, or, or have some kind of authority, or, or in your local church, be the one that people go to for things, you're actually the person who lives a humble lifestyle, so that you are freely exchanging, and letting things flow through your hand, that's what Paul's talking about. Not a bunch of super uh, Christians who walk around puffed up with all the knowledge and giftings that they have, but people who are as low as they possibly can get because they've emptied themselves. God likes using people who like being empty rather than people who like being full. You follow? This is what he's trying to get across. So let's go to verse 8. Before we read 8, I said just a moment ago that one of the things that this church lacked was a willingness to share. Another thing they lacked was a willingness to follow through on commitments. We're about to find out that they originally were excited to sign up for this giving campaign, but very quickly kind of lost interest in it. And Paul's going to address that. Go to verse 8. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for, for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. A year ago, you were all on board, and you weren't just on board. You were like really on board. You wouldn't shut up about it. So now, finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. What does that mean? That means your willingness to give should be in proportion to what you actually have to give. Do not give on credit. When you go to Red Hills Church, and, and if you were to give your time, do not give to this church using your credit card. Like, if look, if your if your home financers are set up in a way where like, well, I use my credit card for everything because I paid off the end of the month and I get my points. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is saying like, I owe, I I am indebted to God, and I don't have it right now, but I'll I'll have it in a month, God. Like, he's not cash today loans. Like you're not taking your car loan and giving it to him and like, just trust me, I'm good for it. That's not how this works. The way this works from Paul's perspective is what you have in your hands, that's what you give, not according to what you don't have. Verse 13, for I do not mean that the others should be eased and you burdened. I'm not trying to get you to become poor so that someone else can be rich, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need. So that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness. Because there's coming a day where, where maybe you may be in need and their abundance will supply your need. As it is written, verse 15, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. So when Paul first mentions this offering over a year ago, the church was really excited about it. But eventually, over time, the novelty started wearing off. And in church, this is clear with, in terms of giving, um, but it's also clear in lots of other areas. Giving is just an indication, but the roots deep down in our hearts is that we're not good at following through with stuff. And uh, I think probably the best way to illustrate this would be how we kind of have a passion for things Um, And we love these things and we get really all in that. And eventually that passion starts waning off and the commitments that we made tied to that passion, they also suffer. So initially we say, yeah, I'm all in. You can count on me. And then eventually after two or three months, it's like, well, you can count on me on the first and third. You can count on me once a quarter. Well, look. That's fine if we can only count on you once a quarter, but let's establish that up front. Let's count the costs before you start building a house so we're not all left standing around going, well, we we thought we could count on this, but now some things change. I understand things change, but if in your life things are always changing, then maybe stop committing to so many things so that you you don't have to keep going back on your own word. Because what is called into question is your character. Because eventually, there comes a place where you'll say, I'm all on board, and no one's going to trust you. Because you're the guy or the gal who constantly comes back two months later, well, I'm just not, I can't. Well, why can't you? Well, uh, I'm just... Well, the truth is that you don't have the passion for it anymore. You lost the passion. And so you've kind of backed off. And this has happened the Corinthian church. It happens in ours. And it's funny because I, I hear people say, um, they kind of take on this persona. And these are the people who constantly do this kind of thing where they get passionate about something else. And then that drops off and they get passionate about something else. And, 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 and they kind of, they, they disguise it in this like, well, I'm just looking for a new passion or I'm looking for a new adventure. I just need something new, exciting. That's not really what you mean. What you mean is, you're too lazy to finish the thing you started, and so now you're trying to find something new to start. That's really what you mean. You're not this passionate, adventurous type. You're lazy. That's what you are. And in Paul's nicest, kindest way, that's what he's telling the Corinthians, you pride yourselves in wearing this badge of being like the charismatic church that's got all the gifts. We're, we're fully and we want all the stuff God is doing. We want all of it. Come on, God. We want all of your stuff. We want to get on board with you. We, we love you. We want to, but not that thing. Definitely not that. When Paul first talked about it, yeah, we'll take that also, but like, that's not as, that's not as, uh, as, uh, as, as cool as, as this other stuff, so we're, well, we'll get to that. Paul's like, well, you can't just get to that later. It's been a year of you getting to that. It's time to do what you said you were going to do. That's what he's trying to get across. So this is the Corinthian church. They had this initial passion, and they start bragging about all the stuff they want to do but as Paul leaves, life sets in, they're not as excited, so they have a hard time following through. So what Paul does is he makes three strong arguments for why they need to follow through. And that's what he has in verses 11 through the end of 15. He essentially says, you need to follow through. You need to do it because first, it proves that your love is genuine. Do what you said you would do because it tells everybody that deep down, your love for God really is genuine. It doesn't get tossed by the sea. You're not signing up for something because some new book came out, or some new thing showed up, or some new idea is sweeping its way through the church, and this is the hot new thing everyone's talking about. No, your love is genuine. You really love Jesus. You don't like being in the spotlight. You really love Him. That's why you should follow through on your commitments, because it proves that your love is genuine. You should do it because Jesus modeled this for us. He became poor so we could become rich. Jesus modeled this, and if he modeled it, then he expected us to follow it. And then finally, it promotes fairness and equality. This is interesting, because in the American church, uh, well, life's not fair. (laughs) The faster you learn that, the easier you're going to have in life. Right? We have this kind of sense, so we're a little more American than we are Christian when it comes to this sense of like what is fair. But Paul is talking about giving in a sense of being fair. And essentially, what he's trying to get across is that look, here's the reality in church. When you are lazy, somebody else has to step up and do more. So, how about you obey? and do whatever God's called you to do with whatever you have. You may be a one-talent person, but by the glory of God, use that one talent. Please. Don't go bury it thinking, well, I'm not a five-talent person. I'll never really shine, so I'll just go bury it, and then no one will even know I wasn't even really that great. No, that's not how the kingdom of God works. If you're good at one specific thing... You come to me and we will find a place. If we have to build something for you to use that gift, that's what we do here. We don't just have nine things and if you don't fit into this mold, uh, maybe you'll go find somewhere other, another church. That's not how we work. We only do things based off of who God sends us. So if nobody in this church is gifted or wants anything to do with children's ministry, guess what? Kids are sitting in here with us. Now, that serves two purposes. It communicates to the church that the value is not in throwing warm bodies at something that they're not passionate about, but it also awakens inside of us the desire to want to do that because most people don't want to sit in a service filled with children every week. You remember May when we came back from COVID and everyone was in here? It takes a, like, it takes a grace from God. To, because I, and it's funny, I used to say this all the time. I I was a children's pastor for like six years. So look, your kids being in the service, it does not bother me. They are always welcome. But after about three weeks of saying that, somebody came up and said, you know, you really should stop saying that because it's nice it doesn't bother you, but it sure bothers me. I'm their mom. (laughs) So you saying that doesn't really mean anything. So I stopped saying that. The point being, when people come to this church we want to leverage ways to, for you to use your gift. Even if it's one, one talent, one small thing that you think is insignificant, we're gonna find a way for you to shine and get that gift used by the kingdom of God. That's the value that we have here. If you're a five-talent person, if you're a 10-talent person, then we have places for you to be able to do that too. But the point being that when you show up to the kingdom of God, you should be contributing whatever it is that you have. And if you don't, All it does is create pressure on other people to feel like they have to step up and fill in the gap. Now, praise God, that's not a thing that happens regularly around here. There's some areas that I think some of you are gifted in, and you just haven't stepped out, and you say, well, I don't don't really really know. And the Holy Spirit is telling you, like, it's time to know. (laughs) Today's the day. It's time for you to get serious about this. And the reason why is because... When it comes to fairness across the kingdom of God, all of us have been gifted with something and when you don't use it, man, that's bad for you and it's bad for the family. We don't get to share the joy of you using your gift when you just say, well, it's not that good of a gift. How about we like, how about we sharpen it? How about we give you an opportunity to kind of grow it? Have you ever used it? Have you ever tried to use it? Because I guarantee you, this is a good training ground. It's good soil around here. You start using that, you might shine in ways you didn't even know you could shine. This is the point that Paul is trying to make in the context of giving. He wants everyone to understand that in God's economy, there's this fairness and equality. And he cites Exodus sixteen seventeen. And this is the story of the manna coming down from heaven. And basically, the point he's trying to make is, look, in God's family, there's always enough for everyone. And the reason why that is, is because he uses each one of us to meet our needs. There's always enough. Why? Because he's using us to meet each other's needs. Now, go to verse 16. Anderson, will you cut the air conditioners off for me, bud? I'm starting to see some popsicles. I mean, I feel great But some of y'all with a fast metabolism, you're like, can we please? Verse 16, but thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. So now he's talking about Titus going down to Corinth and coming back up and bringing the message of this giving to Paul from Corinth. With him, we're sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. Man, who is that? Paul doesn't say, and it drives me nuts. It drove commentators nuts for years. Nobody knows who this dude is. Who's the guy who's famous for his preaching of the gospel? I want to know. We don't get to know. Verse 19, and not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. I think it was probably Timothy. Maybe it was Luke. I don't know. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable Not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. Oh, this is interesting. So now we're talking about how he's collecting this money and how he as a leader is managing this. This is the stuff churches don't like talking about. We're going to have some fiscal responsibility here. We're not just going to take your offering in cash and count it in the back. There's going to be multiple people involved in the process so that there's some level of character in the process. Verse 22, and with them we're sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for you. For your benefit, and as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love, and our boasting before you to these men. Okay, so so what Paul is doing here is he's he's giving instructions on how this offering should be collected and should be managed. We're talking a large sum of money. By the time he has finished his missionary journey and collected the offering from all of these Gentile churches, when he gets back to Jerusalem, this is a lot of money. And he wants to avoid the appearance that all of this money is going into his pocket. And so he sets these layers between him and the money to eliminate that accusation that Obviously, is going to come his way if he doesn't do this. So what does he do? He says that he's not going to be touching the money. He's sending other people to collect it in his place. And these people that he's collected, they have shown themselves approved and he trusts them. Other churches trust him as well. And he does this because he's avoiding the accusation of theft. He also says um, that he has multiple people collecting this and managing it, and that creates a sense of accountability. It's not just one person's word. There were three or four people who touched this, and all of them saw the same amount before it got deposited into the bank. And that is the way that you can have assurances that no one's skimming off of the top. But above that, he says that he's designating specific men from each church to deliver it as a way to kind of let these churches share the joy. And when we go to this story, when they eventually finish collecting all this, in Acts 20, when Paul eventually returns back to Jerusalem, we find that there's an envoy of seven men from various churches that have come with him to give this offering to Jerusalem. So you've got seven Gentile men representing these churches that he came from, presenting this money to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem who are suffering. I mean, it's pretty awesome, right? The way he structured this is smart. So he's specifically talking about this offering, but we know within church that like fiscal irresponsibility, it casts a really long shadow on the people of God and the church as a whole. So I would argue that the way he's taking up this offering, um, inside of it are some good practices that we should implement in a local church to avoid some of the things that he was trying to avoid. There's lots of reasons why people leave churches, um, but the top of the list has to do with money almost always. People's and, and even if you're not associated with, even if you never attended that church, maybe you just listen to the pastor online. If you get one whiff of him being irresponsible with the money, it's just like, eh, I don't have, I don't, I'm not really going to listen to anything he has to say. We just kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater. So how do we how do we handle that? Well, it's difficult to um, to address because. When it comes to money within a church, there's a lot of reasons why churches are bad with money. The first would be the fact that just like churches are filled with people who are just bad with money. (laughs) I mean, you look at their personal checkbooks, their credit scores. They're just bad with money. They're not disciplined. They say yes to everything. And then these people rise into leadership and you expect that somehow they're going to enact some kind of discipline at the church level when they don't do it in their home. But then you go and look at what Paul says qualifies you to lead in a church. It's what's going on in your home. So the idea that we think, well, if, 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 if you know, things are not going good at home, well, somehow, maybe if we give them the responsibility within a local church, like things will cha- it's gonna change. It's not going to change. It's going to get worse. If you're not faithful in little things, you're not going to be faithful in big things. So that's one of the reasons. Another one would be that, that the church as a whole just has a, a bad habit of just throwing money at things to fix problems. Kind of like the federal government. we got a problem, let's just throw money at it. Maybe if we throw enough, it'll go away. It's not going away. What you're doing is uh, keeping the, the problem in place and now creating another problem because now there's not enough resources for other issues that come up because now you've just thrown a bunch of money at stuff and you've got a bunch of people with dark hearts and what they like to do is just take that money and put a little bit at the, at the issue and then pocket most of it and say, well, it's not working. Maybe if you threw more money, it would work. The process is broken. Uh, I mean, another reason why churches struggle with money is just because um, within the church leadership level or the church as a whole, there are just people who are just, they, they like taking advantage of generous people. They're just wolves in sheep clothing. But even though there are lots of reasons why churches struggle with finances, whatever the reason is, it leaves the same result. It erodes the trust in the kingdom of God. It turns people off, not just from your church, it turns them off from God. It turns them off from discipleship. They don't want anything to do with Jesus because you're not managing money well. We took that really seriously when we planted this church. I don't want there to be a question in your mind about what is happening with your money. That's why we do quarterly family updates. And I try to show you down to the dollar the, where the money is going and how we're planning. We had a trustee meeting at my house last night where we were talking about ways that we could fiscally responsibly invest the money that we have for our um, building fund. How, what, what can we do with that that is the most responsible for God's kingdom? We're trying to be proactive in that. We set out our budget a, a year in advance. By December 31st, we will have all the money and then some for our budget for next year And that everything that you give in a year is always going to the the, to the next year, and I do that so that I'm not constantly preaching a message that sounds a little bit like "Gimme, gimme, gimme, gimme money, please! Gimme money, please! Gimme money, please!" Because what happens in the church is that it turns into this machine. And the bills have got to be paid, and we've got people on staff, and we've got to feed their families. And it feels like this justifiable thing to make the Sunday morning about collecting an offering. And that's not what it's about. It's about gathering and celebrating all the amazing things Jesus has been doing all week long with the people of God so the joy gets shared across the board. It's not so that you can hear a message that sounds a little bit like we need more. You're not giving enough. So like Paul, we build in these little boundaries that help protect the teaching of the Word of God, that establishes credibility, and this is the point of, of, of what he's trying to say. Because once, once the, the character or, or, or um, uh, the, um, within the local church, the, the, the trust level gets eroded, like it is almost impossible to get it back. So let's live in a way that if someone were to come to you and say, "Eh, Marshall's stealing from the church, your response is to promptly laugh in their face because that is the most ridiculous thing that you've ever heard. Because I have done my very best to live in such a way where there is no question where the finances are going and it's not into my pocket there are multiple people collecting, like the way Paul says, there are multiple people t- touching the money. We have even set up things within this church, and most pastors, this sounds ludicrous, but in seven years as a church, I have never looked at the giving of any person in this church. I have no idea how much any of you have ever given or ever will give. Now, when it comes to leadership, there are some levels of, like when Lyle stepped up into leadership, I asked our business administrator, I said, can you give me a report? Is he faithfully giving? The answer is yes. Good. That's as far as I need to know. Are you consistent and faithful in your giving? Yes. Good. That's what we want. But the moment I start knowing this family gives this amount and this family starts giving, guess what my message starts sounding like? Well, this Sunday morning, turn to so-and-so, because we're going to have a message for the Smiths or the Johnsons. And all of a sudden, the message sounds like it's only for two people in the room. You have no idea what I'm talking about. You've never seen this before, right? The purpose of this is that in a local church, there should be boundaries set up so the pastor can't go beyond those boundaries and take advantage of the finances in the church. And that's how Paul set it up. So that's the, that's the process we're going to follow. Amen? So this is what he's organized. Now, from that point, let's jump into nine because he kind of continues with this thought. Verse one, it says, Now it is superfluous, for me to write to you about the ministry of the saints, for I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that uh, Achaia has been ready since last year, and zeal has stirred up most of them, but I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, some Macedonians come with me when we show up in Corinth and find out that you're not ready We're gonna be humiliated to say nothing of you (laughs) for you being so confident. You're a pretty cocky church, and when we show up and the money's not ready, it's gonna look bad on me, but imagine what it's gonna look like on you. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. So speaking of eroding trust, What he does is he sets up um, kind of three ways that he expects the giving in this church to be managed. And I kind of reference this at the end of eight. These are principles that he establishes for this specific offering, but I think they're good principles that we could establish across the board. So we have established them in our church some of them being the restrictions that are on me as the pastor to the access to specific finances and the way that that works and how we set up our budget to protect the teaching of the gospel. But other things he's starting to address to these churches, he says, look, when it comes to giving, this is what I expect. I expect the church to be ready when I arrive. So giving should be this thing that we are ready for constantly. It's not something we should be playing catch up with. It's something that we should be organizing our life around so that we're ready to give as the Lord blesses. So as the Lord pours down we have positioned ourselves to not be stocked up with so much debt that we've got to all right thank you for this let me pay these people because I bought things I didn't need and now we're going to let this stuff flow through no I've already positioned myself that I don't owe anybody anything so whatever you want to flow through you can use me you can trust me I'm a conduit I want to be used by you God that's this is this is what he's saying He's saying that giving should be voluntary and in no way connected to arm twisting. It should be done publicly, not as some kind of payment for a good um, message. (laughs) We don't give because, man, that was a good one. You deserve it. I'm gonna put a little extra on top because you really just knocked that one out of the park. Last week, eh, not so good. Try again. (laughs) But this week, I was real something. We'll put an extra 50 in there for you. That's That's not how giving works but that's how we like to make it because that's how everything else in life works, right? God says, this is not like anything else in life. It should be pure. It should never be manipulated. It should never be rooted in deceit. Local church giving should be rooted in biblical precedent. There should be examples that we look to that show us, oh, this is what it looks like. And that's what he does in verse six through 15. So we're gonna finish the chapter here and he's gonna give us some examples from the Old Testament of what, what, biblical rooted giving looks like. So verse six is this. The point is this. So let me give you some illustrations of the Old Testament. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So you put in a little bit, you're going to yield a small result. You live a life that's completely open-handed, and you surrender everything, you're going to be surprised at the abundance that comes from that He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. That's good. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous in every way. You won't be enriched in every way so you can build your portfolio. You'll be rich in every way so you can be generous in every way which through us will produce thankful thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of his service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it's also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of the contribution from them and for all others. While they are long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God, for his inexpressible gift. Now in verse 6, where he says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. And I told you he's rooting giving in the Old Testament. He's quoting Proverbs 22.9. Verse 9, where he goes to, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He's quoting Psalm 112.9. God has always been a giver and he holds nothing back. And then in verse 10, he who supplies the seed for the sower and bread for food, he's quoting Isaiah fifty five ten, 10, where God essentially in that series of chapters, uh, 53, 54, and 55, he's in generously inviting the whole world to come and feast on the banquet of God's generosity. And the cool thing about Isaiah 55, that quote is really um, interesting because in 53, Isaiah 53, that's the suffering servant. And in Isaiah 54, it's the covenant renewal because of the work of the suffering servant because of what the suffering servant did, that's Jesus, there is a renewal of the covenant. And because of the renewal of the covenant, everyone is welcomed back into the banquet in 55. And we we come to the table and we joyfully consume the things that God has given us. His point being that this is the greatest demonstration of giving. It's Jesus. It's always, always, always about Jesus. God Spared no expense in giving his son. Jesus was a giver. He gave his entire life. There's no leftovers in that story. So the only proper response you have as a Christian is to sow bountifully, and that's his point. Giving definitely practically meets the needs of people in God's kingdom, but it goes even deeper than that. Giving is an indicator of your heart. It shows you where you actually, what you love. It shows you where your affections are. So giving definitely meets the needs of people like your missionaries. It meets the needs of um, uh, local pastors and churches. It meets the needs of uh, people in, uh, in the church who are in need. It serves the needs of serving um, people who are uh, uh, in need in other church communities. But, but even more than that, it does more than that. It, it does more than just meet needs. It enriches you in generosity It changes you. Your capacity to let things go changes you. That's the big thing. As you let go, and I'm talking, Paul's talking about money, but I'm talking about other stuff. I'm talking about emotional stuff too. Your desire to be the kind of person who holds on to everything will rob you of the joy of living a gracious life in Christ. Your ability to let go will mature you in ways you didn't know you could be matured. So this teaching, I think for me is kind of surreal because you guys are definitely not Corinthians. You guys are Macedonians. You guys are constantly giving this month October, well that was last yesterday. So the month of October, I typically give you a, a Family update every quarter, Um, but I just got to give you this one. So, last month, October, we surpassed our highest month, which was September. Last month, we hit $25,000 in the month in giving, over and above. It's like anytime there's a perception of a record, boom, you guys are smashing through it. You guys are not the Corinthians, you're the Macedonians. So, what application could I possibly have to a church that? always goes above and beyond and already lives a generous life. The point of this message is not to stir you to give. You're already doing that. So what is the point of this message? The point of this message is to get on board with this idea that this is not just about the giving. Yes, thank you. Keep doing it. But what God wants to do, the grace he wants to move through you, is even bigger than just you obediently on a regular basis saying, I'm going to give to Red Hills Church. Because what's happening at our church is unique. What's happening in worship? What's happening in the response to the word? What's happening every Sunday when you guys show up? That kind of feeling that something, man, something's going on. Some people describe it as like a revival, like there is something being revived on the inside of me. I'm waking up to things I didn't know. What's happening here in our church? This doesn't happen every day. It can, it's offered, but it doesn't. Because people's affections become more important than, than directing our affections at Jesus. Everything's more important than Him. But when we start making Him the most important thing, every, and, and, here's, and I was telling my kids this the other day, and I just want to pause for a minute and just say thank you for being such an amazing, obedient church. Because my kids are getting to grow up in a culture that is vastly different than most preachers kids get to grow up in. Because what's happening is my kids are watching a bunch of people saying, yeah, Jesus. And they're not just saying it with their obedience to showing up or, or the way that worship is responding or the response to the word. They're seeing it in the finances. And I'm, I'm living in such a way where I can be open because um, they're sitting in the family updates. And like my son the other day was like, dad, I can't believe how much people are giving. And I told him, I said, son, listen, you can pack a room full of ton, tons and tons of people and you can do that lots of different ways. But the indication on whether people are really actually bought in on the vision and what God is doing is always reflected in the giving. Because people will show up to a thing, but they won't always give to a thing. And if you can get people, church folk, to stop thinking about giving to a need, oh, we bought this thing and now we need you guys to pay for it, and start giving to a vision, look, we already have, a, we know where we're going. Here's how we're organizing and set things up. So, so we don't need your money, but bless God, if you want to get in on this part of what God's doing here, we want you to be a part of it. That's a totally different message of, oh, we really need. Come on, we really need. We've already, well, we got bills, we got to pay. We, we've already paid our bills. We're not in debt. We want you to be a part of this. If God's called you somewhere else, that's totally cool. But what God's doing here, this is unique. And I was telling my son that the other day. The indication of what's happening here is reflected in the giving because it shows that from the heart level you're not just this and you're not just this. Deep down, you're sold out to what God's doing uniquely here at our church. And like, there's not a message I can preach that'll get you more in on that because you're already doing it. So, so what's the takeaway? What are we doing today? Why are we talking about this? Other than this is just expository preaching, this is what Paul was talking about, so this is what we're talking about. We do this because we want more than ever to God, for God to use our obedience in giving to affect the other churches in this city, and this country. Because here's what I want. I want pastors to hear through the grapevine that this church operates off of a fully funded budget a year in advance. Because pastors, church leaders will say, oh, that's not a thing. Can't do that. Uh, we're doing it. We're already doing it. It takes a lot of discipline. It says saying no to a lot of things. It means not owning a whole lot. It means sometimes living out of a trailer. But I, I can tell you that the pressure of not having to preach to an offering is very freeing. And when we buy in on that and you contribute to that and that message gets out, it starts affecting other people around. And I've said this a thousand times. A lot of people are not doing what is supposed to be done just because they've never seen it modeled before. And they're, they're, they're cursed by this mindset of like, well, it can't be done because I've never saw it. I've never seen it be, been, been done before. Well, we want to be the church that shows you it can be done. And then in some way, you can start adopting this at your church level or, oh, praise God, man, even at your family level. What would it mean for your family if your entire budget was already a year in advance? What pressures would you be out from under if you didn't owe anybody anything? If you need somebody to look at and say, how can it be done? We'll stand up as Red Hills Church and say, we'll show you how to do it. We're a small, little scrappy church, but we'll show you how it can be done because there are values in the kingdom of God. And look, if you can do this right, a lot of the reasons why people don't show up to church, those will disappear too. So we're not trying to toot our own horn. What we're trying to do is the same thing Paul did in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. He's leveraging what this small, poor, little church is doing to leverage larger, more wealthy, well-adopted churches to take on these same responsibilities. That's what God is doing here. So what is the takeaway? Let's keep on doing what God is doing here because he's gonna use it to affect a far greater reach than you could have ever imagined. I was sitting in my living room with Chad and Chrissy last night and we were talking about the the end of 2013 when we planted the church. We started in my living room. We were counting, I think we counted like 15 people in my living room. And it never, it, it never stops being amazing sitting in here on a Sunday and worshiping and just kind of standing in the midst of the crowd. And every week I turn around, I'm just like, I don't know, half of y'all. <laughs> and y'all keep inviting more people and more people showing up. And I'm looking around like, look at what God is doing. And it's not because of some manipulation or some, because I know somebody who knows somebody. This is a genuine, this is something genuine that God is doing. And it's beautiful. And it's not just for us. That's the takeaway. The point of this is what God is doing is he's establishing some principles, not just so this family is healthy, but so that we can be a blessing to other families that look on and say, how did you do that? This is how we did it. Amen? So this is our prayer today. God, continue making us people who live open-handed and start using that posture to affect those around us. Amen? All right, so let's pray.